Wondering if angel investing is the right path for you? Well, I have a real treat for you today because I have a climate tech angel investor himself on the podcast. He has a diverse background and history in the climate tech space and will tell you exactly what it takes to catch the eye of a potential investor. And we even go deep into whether angel investing is right for you and your business because it really depends on your goals. So stay tuned to this incredible episode with DC Palter. You are here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. DC, we have so many different topics to cover here. Again, you have many different ventures, especially your previous work in investing in climate tech startups and your experience not only investing, but mentoring them as well. So I would love for you just to start off with your story and hear about how you went from being an engineer and into investing in climate tech startups. Okay. Well, it's kind of a long story. I'm going to give you the very short version because we don't have it too long. I started off as an energy engineer because back in the 80s, I thought energy was going to be the defining problem of our age. Price of oil dropped and nobody else agreed with me at that time. So I ended up working actually at a Japanese company, a Japanese steel manufacturer, looking at how to reduce pollution. And in those days, pollution meant knocks and socks and other things like that instead of carbon dioxide. But it was a pretty critical issue with smog. And so I worked on that for a few years. After a while, I said I had enough of the engineering side of things. I wanted to get to the be on the business side of technology. Went back, got my MBA, worked in, and there's no jobs in energy at that time either. Although I did get a chance to work on the original EV1, the General Motors kind of prototype of electric vehicle in the 1990s. I was working at Hughes at the time and Hughes did the charging systems for that. So I was actually responsible for introducing the charging systems to the Japanese car manufacturers so that everybody would standardize on the same charging. Then GM killed the electric vehicle. We've all seen the movie. I was not the one who killed it, but it killed my job. So I wasn't doing that anymore. Ended up in IT because everyone was in IT during the dot-com bubble. And after a while, I said, okay, I've done that, but climate tech, now everyone sees climate tech is real. I want to be part of that. Went back, got a master's degree in climate law and policy and ended up combining with my, I've been an angel investor for a while. And so then I really started focusing my angel investing on climate tech startups. And then once I was able to leave the company I was at, I spent a lot of time actually mentoring or helping or getting involved with startups in the climate tech space and helping out at accelerators and anywhere I can. So kind of a long journey, but here I am. Yeah, definitely. And I think we all have a journey of how we got here to where we are. And it's, yeah, it's, it's always so interesting. Path. No, no, it never is. It never is. And it's always very interesting where people all come from. And I think we're all reaching this point here and now, if we want to make some type of impact, realize that the issue of the climate crisis and how important it is and realizing that we can use types of different talents and backgrounds in order to apply it to be able to fight the climate crisis. The defining problem of our generation, absolutely, oh, without a doubt. And we need, we need to solve it. And we need people from all different directions to be solving all different aspects of it. It's not as simple as 
well, we're just going to invent a way to turn carbon dioxide into something and that's going to solve everything. And there's just a million things we need to do. So, and the great thing about being involved in all the startups is I get to see so much innovation in this space and it's really wonderful. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of times some people get a little sidetracked and fight amongst themselves on, oh, this is more important or this is more important. This is yeah, more important. They're all important. Yeah, exactly. I think we need a combination of all of them because in different situations, we have different technologies that will work well for different places. So saying that, oh, solar is the way to go across the board. And it's like, right, well, right. if you live in Seattle, solar is not really the best right. thing. <laughs> you only like... live during the daytime and don't live at night. <laughs> solar right, is great. Right, yes. exactly. And you don't live in above the Arctic Circle and right. some months of the year, you have 24 hours of darkness. So like you have these different time periods. So it's definitely, we need a lot of different options and a lot of different yes. innovations in this space. What has been some of the most exciting that you've seen as an investor? Yeah. So in more than a decade, I've been investing in startups and I've invested in somewhere around 40 individual startups along with a few funds that each would do 10 or, or 15 companies. So just talking about my individual investments where I've had some sort of involvement with them, I think there's somewhere around 10 companies that are particularly in the climate tech space. And so I'd like to go through all, all of them, but I'll keep it short because I think they're all really exciting and they're all doing very different things. So kind of one that comes to mind is where I was a mentor and then that led me to being an investor. It's called the Herd Company. What they do is they are making fabrics out of agricultural waste or making fibers out of agricultural waste. So until now, you kind of had a choice of using cotton, which takes a lot of water to produce or using something that essentially is a version of polyester, which comes from an oil base. And there is an option of, of there are some fibers that are based on cellulose, but you have to cut down trees for that. So what they're taking is agricultural waste and turning that into clothing. Wouldn't that be wonderful, right? For sustainability. Another one is harvest thermal. Okay. And so this is very timely. What they do is in your home nowadays, most homes have a gas heating system and a gas water heater. And of course, electrical hookups and everyone says, well, we really need to get rid of the gas hookups to the home. So what are we going to do about our heating and our hot water? Well, there are heat pumps but electricity is expensive to run. And then you still have the hot water and, and electric hot water heaters are not very efficient. So they had a wonderful idea. And this really comes back to my thermodynamics background. It was just like, yes, why didn't somebody do this a long time ago? Well, nobody wanted it a long time ago. It's run your heat pump at the time of the day when electricity is either the cheapest or the cleanest. Like there's a lot of times when we're generating, like the, California is a big problem. We have all these solar panels and they generate loads of electricity at two o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon. And then everybody comes home at six o'clock at night and turns on their heater and turns on their air conditioner and the sun has gone down and there's not enough electricity. And so the price of electricity goes like this. And what are we doing? We have to use coal for that or at least gas. So their idea is let's take that time when the electricity is cheap, whether that's four o'clock in the afternoon or that's in the middle of the night when the winds are howling and it's generating lots of wind energy, but nobody's using it because everybody's asleep. Let's take that energy, let's generate heat, but we don't want to heat the house then. What we do is we heat the water tank. So the water tank becomes a thermal battery. And then we have hot water because we have this tank of hot water, but then we can also use the hot water to heat the house at the time is when we need heating. So now we're arbitraging the cost of electricity, using it when it's cleanest or cheapest and being able to provide hot water home heat without using gas. 
And I think that's a wonderful idea. Here's another one, a company I was working with called Comfort IQ, where I actually got involved and was helping out with some of their marketing. You've been in a big office. Big office has one thermostat for like five or six offices, right? And half of the time, half of the offices are too hot, half of the offices are too cold. We spend all day fighting over the thermostat because there's one thermostat. And then half of the time, no one's in those offices anyway. And wouldn't it be great if we could have a system that's like the lights, right? If you're not there, the lights go off after 15 minutes, right? Why can't we do that with the heating and air conditioning systems, which use up a lot more energy than those lights do? Well, the problem is there's only one thermostat for those five offices, and we can't turn it off for one because there's somebody in the other one. So they came up with a very interesting system. Again, it's not rocket science. It's really just kind of system integration and saying, okay, well, what are the pieces we need to do this? Let's put a damper in the duct in each office, and let's put a sensor an IoT sensor in each office, which measures the temperature and the occupancy. And then we connect it to an app on a smartphone where you can plug in what temperature you want. And if there's nobody there, we close the damper. If there's somebody there, we open the damper and we can adjust it to get the temperature they want. Hey, it's not, it's not magic dynamics. It works. And there's been a couple of others I just want to mention briefly. One is called Nevados that if you've ever seen the pictures of solar energy farms, right? And there's these big areas with just long rows of solar panels. And because there's so many of them, it makes sense to have them actually tracking the sun so they can get highest efficiency. Well, the problem is tracking systems is one giant long steel pole that everything is on, which means you need completely flat ground to be able to turn it. So they came up with a system that's pretty much like a U-joint in your car, which allows each panel to be separately mounted so that you can turn it on one side. And even if the ground is not completely flat, each one will be able to turn independently. So that means we can now build solar farms on land that isn't completely flat anymore. So we can use hilly land. We can use land that isn't so great for farming. And one more, another favorite of mine is called Interviews. If you go to most cities, there's all of these buildings that were built however many years ago that have single pane glass. It's not very energy efficient. Nobody cared in the 1940s or even in the 70s. And so you have a few choices. You can retrofit the entire building. That's really expensive. You can put up kind of window film that I have here, which helps, but it's not very efficient. Or what they came up with was a mounting system that allows you to attach an extra pane of glass on top of the existing glass. And this is, wouldn't be for homes, this would be for big office buildings, but it's a fraction of the cost of retrofitting a building. So that is another favorite of mine, how do you make buildings more efficient? So none of these are straightforward as we're gonna need more solar, or we're gonna have more wind, or we're gonna use electric vehicles. It's how do we make the entire system more efficient? How do we make it more circular? And how do we take advantage of the assets that we have to use them? And then and lastly, I can't help not mentioning I've been involved in a couple of startups that do water purification. That's a huge area of how we can better recycle our water, how we can reduce pollution, how we can take water that comes out of factories and reduce the effluents, how we can take water that isn't particularly clean and generate clean water out of it. Because in California, we need water. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry I went on too long, but uh, I get excited about <laughs> no, these you're which good. is why I invest in them because these are the ones that excited me. Yeah, definitely. No, it, you can definitely feel your excitement, which is really awesome. It, and they're definitely all really, really cool. Especially the one that struck me was the hot water heater about right. basically using that as a battery of sorts. Yes. You're yes. taking thermal battery. You know, right, right. A thermal battery. You're taking at the time of the day when you have the extra electricity, you're heating it up and right. using that to then right. heat the house later, which yes. is just 
but yeah, everyone's thinking these. in terms of electricity and the power walls, whatever Tesla calls it. And we're going to say, we're going to put panels on the roof and we're going to save it as electricity and we can do whatever we want with electricity. And that's great. That's actually not very cost efficient because the batteries are really expensive. A water tank? That's cheap. That's a piece of metal and it's a valve. Yeah. And water, which water has a really high yeah. heat index. Is that what it's called? I think it's something like that, where it takes a good amount of energy to actually heat it up one degree right. versus other substances. So yeah, you know, like it's, it's an easy resource for us. So you know, water yeah. is more abundant than a lot of other things. And we need you know, the water anyway. For hot, we need that hot water tank anyway. So we just have a bigger hot water tank than we would have otherwise. Right. Exactly. I love that. I think that's, that's awesome. But like you mentioned, using things that we already have around, just making them either more efficient or finding a new way to utilize them in a different way, which is always really, really good because we already have a lot of these things out there. A lot of these things already installed. We don't want to just retrofit these things because they're green. I know like a while back, we used to have the, the lead certified buildings and things like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times yep. they would like give you points for, oh, you have yes. a recycle bin and you have yes. installed this and yes. installed this. And it was a lot yeah. of like, what, how many gadgets can we yeah. add? And yeah. I, I think we really kind of need to move away from like, okay, we need to add more gadgets, spend more money on things. How can we use what yes. we already have? make right. them more efficient, a better way of using what we already have rather than spending more money, having more products, things yep. like that. I love that. And you're also part of some investment organizations as well. Yes. Do you mind talking about? No, that job is partially to help publicize the organizations. I'm part of two organizations that are angel investment groups. And so I said, 40 individual investments. Some of those came through those groups. Some were just part of my mentoring, but then I've also invested in these group funds where we as an organization will jointly decide what we want to invest in. So two groups that I've been involved in for quite a long time. One is called Tech Coast Angel. It is the largest angel investment group. There's about 400 members across three chapters in Southern California. So what we try to be is the angel investment group for startups in the Los Angeles ecosystem. So if you're in LA, you should apply to our organization. Either I'm part of the LA chapter, there's Pasadena Angels, which is part of our organization. And then there's Orange County Tech Coast Angels. So apply to one of those and you'll get in front of somewhere around 400 hundred angel investors to be able to pitch your investment. We both invest as individuals and each of the three chapters has its own fund where we would invest 200 or 300,000 as part of the fund. And the one thing about that is we invest in anything, right? If it's a Southern California company, even if it isn't, if it's a recommendation for one of the members, we're completely sector agnostic. So we've invested in everything from organic cider to, well, I've had pitches for things like women's shoes. We get a lot of protein bars or keto protein bars or organic protein bars. I don't know why, but that seems to be a big thing. It's an easy startup to do. And then a lot of software and a lot of med tech. And so that's great. We see a wide variety of stuff, but I really get excited about science and I really get excited about clean tech and we're not going to get as much of that, right? So I joined another organization called Chemical Angels. And that's a group of about 70 people, mostly PhDs in chemistry, which is not me, but I'm the startup guy, the thermodynamics guy rather than the chemistry guy. And that's very specifically company startups that have ties to chemistry or the chemical industry, which mostly falls into two categories. It's either life science related, pharmaceuticals or med tech, which really is a different world and I can't evaluate very well, or the other half is chemistry enabled sustainability, right? Everything from how we make fibers out of sustainable materials, how we, batteries, 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 batteries. I love it every day. It's like, 
a better cathode, a better anode, a better electrolyte, a better separator to make sure there's no fires, new kinds of batteries, flow batteries, membranes for flow batteries, a lot of water costs water osmosis, membranes, things like that. We see a lot of those sorts of things. So, and the great thing about it is there's all these PhDs in chemistry, you understand the chemistry. There's people who've worked at places like DuPont or any of the big chemicals companies. Then we're all connected to those organizations so that we can reach out and we can talk to Shell Ventures and say, is this something that Shell would be interested in, in order to do our diligence? So we can do a very deep diligence analysis of the companies in the way that a more general group can't. And so I would encourage anyone whose startup is really a hard tech science that has a chemistry angle to it to apply to chemical angels. It's a great group. Yeah, and that no, group also has awesome. a fund as well. So we invest as individuals and then there's, we'll invest as, as a group with a fund. Cool. And have you also seen kind of like bioplastics too? Do you guys do Absolutely. anything Absolutely. on that side? Yes. Yes. We see a lot of those. So a lot of the companies that come to us are spinoffs from university research that will be people with degrees in chemistry. And this is the work they've done. So a lot of bioplastics, a lot of synthetic chemistry, a lot of green hydrogen, and again, like a lot of batteries, right? Which is kind of electrical, but it's also chemical. So thing that has to do with the hard sciences, how we use science for sustainability is tends to be a very good fit. Gotcha. And what do you see as those winning pitches? I guess you could say like, what about those right. winning pitches do you see as being those ones that are able to stand above the rest? Yeah. So we see a lot of pitches. We, I don't want to say reject, we pass on a lot of pitches. The ones that win usually have a really good combination of one customer traction. So a lot of the ones that we see are still kind of in the research stage. It's like, that's great. Go get government grants and work on it. And when you have something that's ready to sell to customers, then we're a good fit. So that's kind of the first thing of what stage they're at. Is it actually a product yet? Or is it still, they're looking for money to actually research. develop? Yeah. And then having both a science side and a business side. And that's the one thing that's lacking is, especially the ones coming out of universities is they're great researchers. They're really not business people. And maybe they've been through an accelerator and yeah, now I know everything about doing a startup. I'm like, no, you no. haven't even worked at a company, much less built and led a team of a hundred people. So you really need to have somebody in there who understands the business side of things as well. So when we get those combinations of science has been proven out, customers are interested. They have a team that puts together the technology side and the development side and the business side, we get very excited. Nice. And. Once you do decide to invest as either part of the fund or as mm -hmm. an individual, what is the next stage of the process? Are you doing a lot of mentoring for them at that beginning stages? Yeah, so the two different groups, the chemical angels and the techos angels tend to be a little bit different in this regard, mostly because chemical angels is mostly the scientists and techos angels tend to be a lot of business people and also chemical angels is smaller. They're mostly working professionals who are kind of putting in their own money. Whereas Tech Coast Angels tends to be people who have more money and looking for investment. So they really have much more of an investor attitude than a science attitude. So you end up with kind of different kind of ways of operating. So we're Tech Coast Angels because it's 400 people. There's 300,000 in each of the three groups investments. We can put together a million dollars between us. We have a lot of people. We're likely to have people who know the industry. We do tend to like to take a board seat and be a lead investor. We don't have to be a lead investor, but we often, and then we'll set the terms. We'll work with the company. We'll be on the board. We'll have people who know the industry. We'll work with them. And so it tends to be a close relationship. Chemical Angels, because it is mostly scientists, we 
usually are not the lead and we're usually not on the board. And so we don't have necessarily as close of a relationship. However, we are people who know the customers and have connections in the industry and understand the science. So we are happy to be involved as advisors, sometimes paid advisors, sometimes really just kind of mentorship. It does tend to be a little bit different, much more on the science side of things than, okay, how do we build a startup and how do we get to profitability? Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. And where do you see angel investing going as an industry in the next couple of years? Yeah. So the next couple of years may be tough, right? We've just been through this bubble of, I think I wrote an article about this a, a few weeks ago. So I started angel investing in around 2010, typical valuation for a company that we would see that would be at first customer revenues would be roughly $6 million. Yeah, there's a lot of factors in there, but just we'll take it as an example. We'll say this company is 6 million. So over the course of time, more people got involved in angel investing. There's some inflation. Around 2018, the average was somewhere around 8 million. Before the pandemic, suddenly there was this big spike. It was more like 10 million. And the pandemic came in and suddenly everyone was an angel investor and everyone's throwing money at stuff and it went to 12 or 14 million and we're just like shaking our heads saying no 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 and so now that the interest rates have gone up and the stock market has calmed down and people are kind of rethinking their very risky investment portfolios outside of climate tech absolutely it's dropped back down, not all the way to 6 million, but more of that 8 million range. People are actually doing diligence. They're looking at the terms. They're looking at, or is there an actual board here? They're being more thorough about evaluating the companies. Climate tech is still in a bubble. There are still people throwing money at Anything that is climate tech is great for founders. They're starting to see a little bit of pushback, but not much yet, but it's coming, right? Because yes, there's a huge need for climate solutions and there's a lot of money out there to help support it and everybody wants to get involved. If we're looking at it as an investment, it needs to make money, right? And so the terms that I've seen over the past couple of years up till now are just like, no, this is going to be a disaster. And eventually they're going to get to a stage where somebody's going to come in and wipe out the previous investors and kind of restart it. And we're like, yeah, okay, that didn't work. Great product, great company. And I think that will come back to some sort of sense of reality of we're only going to invest in things that will make, it make sense for us to be an investor rather than a donation. Right. Yeah, definitely. Do you think there is going to be any impact from the Inflation Reduction Act or the bipartisan infrastructure law that came through recently? Did that have any impact on the angel investing market or at all? Yes and no. Certainly every pitch I've seen has kind of thrown that up there on slide one and how much money there is and how that's going to solve all these problems. It does affect kind of the later stage startups, right? The ones that are already raising $100 million and some of the money has gone to them. And that's great for things like building battery factories, right? But if you're in the research stage of building a better cathode for that battery. It's great that there's a market out there and that the government is trying to support batteries. And so that helps, but does that make the difference between that investment being worth 8 million versus 10 million? I don't think so. Cause it really comes down to, can they execute does the technology work? Can they execute? What's the competition more so than is the market a billion dollars or a billion point two dollars, right? So I'd say it's great. It helps the entire ecosystem. It doesn't help individual investment. There are exceptions to that, especially if you're in sectors where the government is investing directly. You may not see that, but if you're I'm pulling up a bad example, because I don't know the law very well and where the funds are being attributed to, but let's say 
you are building a company that's making a better charger, right? Better EV charger. And the government wants to roll out some thousands of chargers. That's a good story, right? There's going to be a lot more chargers. There's a lot more money that's going to be given away to municipalities to put chargers out there. We got a better charger. And so, yeah, people have struggled with chargers because it was all about the economics. Now there's lots of free money out there. That's a great story, but that's more of an isolated. Yeah, especially if you were like a company that was working to install those chargers in historically yes. disadvantaged, disadvantaged areas. Like, yeah. that'd be perfect. And that's a great business. That's not really a venture investment. That's more of a contractor sort of business. So there's lots of opportunities out there that aren't necessarily venture businesses. And probably that's always one of my takeaways when talking to young startups is venture is not the only way to get funding. And in a lot of cases is not the best way to get funding. Everybody thinks about venture investment as, okay, I've got a great idea. Let me go to the venture capitalist. I'm going to give me money. I'm going to build my company or I'm going to get rich. But that's not how it works. They're looking for particular things. Essentially, they are looking for, they kind of have a rule of it needs to get to $100 million in revenue within five years and be an easy target for an acquisition at a billion dollars within about a five-year time frame. That is what the VCs are looking for. That's kind of the business model that works for how they do investment. That is not all businesses. That's not even all good businesses. So you have to think beforehand, is that my business? And is that the route I want to go? Because they're going to push me in that direction because that's all they're investing for, right? And they're going to be on my board and they're going to be pushing me grow, 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 grow. That may not be the best thing for my business. So you have to kind of think through the beginning of what is my long-term goals? What is my long-term business model? Does that fit into the venture model? If not, what are the other ways that I can fund the business? Definitely. We've had a few other people on the podcast who have touched on that point. You have to really consider what are your goals and do they match up with yeah. VC goals and everything like that? Right. Because they have certain expectations and they're going to yes. expect you to make certain changes and you right. might have to, they might want you to grow extremely fast, a lot faster than you're willing to do, especially if you're yes. not willing to take some not so good things about hiring certain people or being really quick about hiring new people. And if you yes. want to do your diligence and build a good culture, it might not always be the best fit because if they're ready to expand and have you grow to the next level and you're not ready to acquire that many people on your team and you want to go a little bit slower with it, it might not be the best fit. So yeah. I, I think that's and, a really and there's good also this issue for me is if you build a product and if you had perfect knowledge, foresight and you crystal ball, and you could say, if I did these things in five years, my revenue is going to be 25 million. If you go to the VCs and you say in five years, my business is going to be $25 million. They're not going to give you any money. So everybody goes to the VCs and says, in five years, my business is going to be a hundred million dollars. It's going to be $250 million. It's going to be a billion dollars. Well, essentially you've made a promise to them that if your business turns out to be a 25 million business, you're going to pivot and you're going to find a bigger business. Even though that $25 million business could have been a really, really good business. It could be generating five, even 10 million in profits. They don't care about profits. They want grow, 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 grow. So all of that profitability is going to get turned back into how do we get into another market? How do we expand it? How do we hire more salespeople? How do we do something to get to that $100 million mark? Because we don't want a $25 million business. And the problem is you hire all these people. You have this big team. You're going after these larger markets. That market may not exist. And then what happens is, okay, then you run out of money because you're always operating at loss and then you're dead if you get to the point where you're not growing and they're not going to give you any more money because it's obvious that you're not going to get to the $100 million mark, the business is over. Whereas if you bootstrap it, you can say, well, okay, I got a $25 million business. 
but I see this opportunity for, for $100 million. I want to grow it. I can invest my own. I can get outside funding, or I can take the profits and have a very nice life. But if you go the VC route, you'll always be operating at a loss, and you'll always be dependent on getting more money, and that money will be dependent on you growing. So that's kind of the model. It works for some companies and other people should be thinking that maybe that's not the right funding model for them. Yeah, definitely. And I think we kind of have a good segue here into the book you wrote about kind of VC <laughs> investing and Silicon yes. Valley. Do yes. you want to talk more about your book? I would love to talk about my book. Yes. So I wrote a book. It's called To Kill a Unicorn. It's coming out from Panda Moon Publishing. It is about a Silicon Valley startup that has been giving away a little bit of the story, but they've invented teleportation. So it's not about clean tech. Just imagine how much teleportation would be worth, right? I mean, that's the end of airlines. That's the end of cars. That's the end of Boeing. That's the end of Southwest. It's easily worth a trillion dollars, right? With this one invention. So when they go public, it's going to be worth more than Apple. Well, if it's an early stage technology, there's some problems with it. So what do they do? Do they wait? Do they try to solve the problems? And it turns out, well, maybe those problems can't be solved. They may be intrinsic in the technology. So I was working on the story when the Theranos scandal broke. And I'm like, okay, now I got it. They are going to hide it. They are going to do anything they can to get to being public. And here's how they're going to hide it. And here's how they're going to get people who might find out about it, not to tell anybody. And so that's kind of the background of the story. The way it's structured is the chief scientist of the company is missing and his sister is looking for him. And she goes to her ex-boyfriend, who's a hacker, and asks for his help to use his hacking skills to see if he can track him and find out what happened to him. And it's just this crazy story because he ends up getting very involved in the company to find out what's going on. It's just a complete farce about Silicon Valley at the same time. He's Japanese, which is my family is as well. So there's a lot of Japanese culture in there. So it takes place. Kind of that's a joke, right? We've all seen the movie Chinatown, which is about clean tech, right? It's about water, about bringing water from the Sierra Nevada mountains to Los Angeles and kind of everything that has to do with it and how the developers kind of drove that and how there was money to be made in the background. Well, Chinatown, everything is messy. In Japantown, everything is perfectly neat. So the story takes place in Japantown and everything in Japantown is completely neat, but then they have to deal with the rest of the world around them. So there's a lot of VCs, there's, there's startup founders, there's hacking, there's video games, there's cryptocurrency. Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the inventor of Bitcoin, makes a critical appearance. So there's a lot of crazy stuff in there. Yeah, that sounds super exciting. What inspired you to write it? Well, it was kind of a bunch of things that I had this character who was a hacker. And really, that was kind of the main thing, right? So I started off, I read a lot of spy novels or mystery novels, and it's always some investigator or reporter or police person or private investigator who's trying to find out everything. So how does he do it? He goes out and interviews people, but he never can get all the information he needs. So he always has to hire his buddy who's a hacker. And the hacker always comes back the next day with a thumb drive full of data, and it has everything that could possibly be needed on there. All the GPS coordinates, all of his credit application, everything you'd imagine. Well, I've been in the computer industry 25 years and I'm like, that information is not easy to get. I'm more interested in how did the hacker get that information? So I wanted to write a story from the hacker's point of view of he has to find somebody, how does he go about doing it? Well, it's a bit of a challenge. There's a reason nobody does that because hacking is boring. It takes months of sitting there and finding little bugs and really just spending all night trying stuff on the computer and doing trace routes. And in the end, a lot of the successful hacking comes down to how do you trick somebody into clicking on something? So it's really not about the computer, it's about social engineering. So that's where I started to get interest. Could I take a hacker who really was not 
He was an engineer, he was a mathematician. He's not good at dealing with people. That's He's great at the computer, he just can't deal with people. He loves being on the computer, he loves playing video games. And now he has this task for a woman, of course, of he's got to find her brother, who is his friend as well. And now he's out of his comfort zone of, yeah, he can do hacking, but he actually has to like deal with real people too. And then he ends up joining the startup and like trying to figure out what's going on there. So I wanted to write a mystery novel from the point of view of a hacker who's not good with dealing with people and kind of a very different twist on the traditional mystery novel. I really like that twist because sometimes the mystery novels or the cop episodes, they make you believe that yeah. you can just go to your tech guy and they'll yeah. provide you everything you need in yeah. just like yeah. five yeah. minutes. And it's like, I want to know no, how the tech cool. guy did that. That's the story to me. If he can get that <laughs> right. information, the mystery solved, right? So how do you get that information? Exactly. And do you currently have a sequel that you're working on? For the book? I do finish the sequel already. Oh, nice. It takes a long time to get from finished writing through editing out to publication. So the sequel is the same characters who now there's his ex-girlfriend is now his girlfriend again. I'm giving away a big secret here, but it is pretty obvious. And her friend is murdered in a home invasion robbery or what looks like a home invasion robbery. And she says, that doesn't make any sense. What's going on? Can you like hack into her computer and find out what's going on? So he hacks into her computer. And he finds an email from a terrorist organization saying there's a terrorist attack coming and all the details are in this attached file. The attached file is encrypted. He can't open it. He goes to the FBI. They can't open it. So now they have to figure out a way to open this file to stop this terrorist attack. And then it turns out that it gets really complicated with the government and the rule. I mean, it's really about the rules about privacy versus the ability of the government to track criminals. That's been an ongoing battle in Silicon Valley of where do you draw that line? And the government obviously wants access to everything. People who come from the privacy side like me are like, no, if the government has access to everything, so does every hacker in the world. So it's not like you can give the government some special key that they can unlock that isn't going to end up getting out to the rest of the world. So there's, it's a difficult decision and that's kind of what the story is about. That's great. Yeah. I think that's definitely a personal security and that kind of thing. There's a fine line there for, yep, yep. and just to wrap it up here, I have a few last questions. I love asking this question because we're currently learning so much about so many different things. So I'd love to hear what are you currently learning right now? Well, I've been spending a lot of time on the book and I've spent my career being a B2B technology marketing person. I'm really good at selling a $60,000 piece of equipment to engineering teams. Selling a $6 book is taking me essentially as much work for each copy as selling a $60,000 piece of equipment. So it's really tough to do B2B marketing. If you're with a big press, it's easy. They send your book out to the New York Times and LA Times and put you on NPR and everyone hears about it for small press. It's a lot more difficult. So I'm trying to figure out how to do consumer marketing for kind of a niche product of a book that's written not for your typical mystery book clubs, which is where the money is in mystery novels, but for startup founders and people in the tech world. So that's kind of my ask is please take a look at the book. If you like it, please write a review on Goodreads and Amazon. It makes a huge difference. And please tell all your friends because they're not going to find out about it any other way other than word of mouth. There's only so many people I can hit up on LinkedIn and say, please read my book. Right. It's a completely different world where you go from B2B marketing to, yeah. to B2C. And, and, yeah. And, so, and usually yeah. the way you usually do B2C is with a huge marketing budget, right? 
that is always the question when a startup comes to us and it's a consumer product, we say, how much money are you devoting to marketing? Or do you have the Kardashians on your side already? Because <laughs> you need some way of getting out to the public. It's really expensive. Are you going to do Super Bowl ads or, or something like that? It's hard for a niche product in the consumer side. That's super interesting. And what is one tip that you would provide for any entrepreneur in the audience who's out there wondering how to grow their business or how to start their green business? What is one tip that you would give them? So looking at it from all of the pitches that I hear of startups, and this is coming from the point of view of the startups I usually hear on the climate tech side tend to be scientists or spinoffs from universities who are really good on technology, but they kind of figure we'll build a better mousetrap and people will just buy it, they'll find us. So kind of my response is the business side is at least as important as the technology side, at least. And you need to have business skills. It doesn't mean just going to an accelerator and learning what go-to-market strategy is. You really need to think through the entire business plan. You need to validate the business plan. And ideally you need to have somebody on your team, just like you need scientists to build a scientific team. You need business people to build a successful business team and don't just think customers are going to find you. So last question here, if anybody wants to reach out to you, get in touch with you, how can they get in touch? The easiest thing is just find me on LinkedIn. I probably spent half my life there. So DC dash Walter or something like that on LinkedIn, please follow me on medium. That's where I publish generally an article a week, usually about startups. So again, just look up DC Palter on medium and you'll find all my articles about startups and pitching and investment, the entire archives. So medium is great for getting stuff out there to a large audience quickly, but they're not very good about having a list of all of your materials and organizing it. So I have my own blog called pitching angels. So pitchingangels.com, where I have a hundred plus articles with everything from a, a series of articles about all of the different slides in your pitch deck, how to talk to investors, some of the things we've talked about today, like what are the ways of getting funding other than venture funding and why should you consider venture funding versus other things. So there's about a hundred articles, my archive that are already up there. And if you're interested in my book, I hope you are, To Kill a Unicorn, go to amazon.com, look up To Kill a Unicorn, DC Palter, or you can go to, I have a website for dcpalter.com. Great. And I'll also have the link for it in the show notes Wonderful. and the descriptions. So everybody Great. will have it there as well and, and links to everything else. So it'll all be there. Well, DC, Wonderful. thank you so much for Absolutely. coming on Thanks to Green Business today. Podcast. This is yeah, this is really a lot of fun. So thank you so much. And I hope you have you back on sometime and when you're releasing your second book and be able to We'd talk about to that it. one. Absolutely. <laughs> We'd love to do it. Be, uh, anytime you need me. I'm great. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this episode with DC Palter, all about angel investing and some of the exciting climate tech startups that he's invested in, then I invite you to check out all the links below for all of his works, including his book, To Kill a Unicorn, or his Medium articles, which is a treasure trove of information for any climate tech startup. You will definitely enjoy his writing. I've read several of his pieces and it's just so much fun and he's got the experience and background to really back up everything that he's saying so make sure you go check out dc's works in the links below thank you for listening to another episode of the green business impact podcast we hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity in a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world make sure to hit subscribe on apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app 
to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. And if you are interested in launching your own podcast to make an even larger impact on the world, then look no farther than the podcasting platform that I use here to launch every single episode of Green Business Impact, Podbean. I searched through all the different podcasting platforms out there and the best choice by far was Podbean. They give you truly the best value and all the resources you need to spread your message to the world by easily connecting you to all the different podcasting networks like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of them. And they give you so many resources and opportunities to monetize it as well. So if you are on the fence about which podcasting platform to go with, make sure you check out the link in the description below to register your podcast with Podbean. Thanks again, and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.